As AI continues to revolutionize our world, there's a critical conversation we can't ignore. AI safety and security. And that's where HackerOne's AI red teaming comes into play, rigorously testing AI models to prevent them from being misled or exploited. HackerOne employs over 2 million ethical hackers, and 750 of them specialize in prompt hacking and other AI security and testing. So HackerOne isn't just theorizing, they're actively safeguarding AI's future. Just recently, a team unearthed over 100 vulnerabilities in just two weeks. So whether you're at the helm of a startup or steering product innovation at a large company, it's time to prioritize AI security. Visit HackerOne.com slash AI for more. Again, HackerOne.com slash AI. This episode is sponsored by Porkbun.com. Porkbun is a refreshingly different domain name registrar that's different from the other ones like GoDaddy or Namecheap. They've got low prices on hundreds of different domain extensions. They've got everything from .com domains to really cool ones like .pro, .dev, .xyz. Every domain name at Porkbun comes with tons of freebies too, like SSL certificate, who is privacy, DNS, URL forwarding, and hosting trials. Because why pay for things that should be free, right? All these incredible features and tools are backed by incredible support, 365 days a year, and more five-star reviews on Trustpilot from real customers than anyone else. Look, you can get a dollar off your next domain name from Porkbun and see why they're the best domain name register around by using our code. Just go to porkbun.com forward slash rocketchipfm24. That's porkbun, P-O-R-K-B-U-N dot com forward slash rocketchipfm24. You'll save a dollar on your next domain. This episode is brought to you by Gigantic. At Gigantic, you can level up your product skills through live, small group, cohort-based trainings. We're incredibly excited to welcome you to our next cohort of our product strategy training, kicking off in January of 2024. This course will take you through the frameworks that product leaders use at companies like eBay, DoorDash, Groupon, Rent the Runway, in order to scale their teams. It's taught by Ben Foster, a friend of this podcast, who is the former chief product officer at Whoop. So come join us. Go to gigantic.is. That's gigantic.is. And save your seat for our January cohort. Your potential is gigantic, and we're here to help you reach it. Go to gigantic.is to reserve your seat today. Welcome to the Rocket Ship Podcast. I'm Matt Goldman. I'm Michael Saka. And I'm Joelle Steiniger. Today we talked with Sarah Chips, the co-founder of Jewelbots. Michael, what'd you think? Man, this was great. Uh, she wrote a kind of a three-part series. It's going to be a six-part series on Medium on starting a hardware company as a software engineer. And so we had her on to talk about some of the challenges and the, the process that they've taken that they've learned because um, so much is the same as software and so much is different. What did you guys think? Yeah, it was fascinating to hear the many rounds of prototypes that you have to go through and to hear about the path they've taken from that first prototype or the first couple prototypes of how it works, how it looks, onto what it is today. And when they're starting to get traction, it's, it's a very different kind of traction when you're talking to people in person and showing a physical product and just watching their 
their reaction as as they you know come into contact with it for the first time. I love that she's targeting young girls too because um, you know I obviously remember what it was like. I'm not that old, and uh, if there was something like this to really get into, um, I may have started down this tech path a lot sooner. So I'm excited to see what kind of impact she has. Could you have seen yourself um, going through school and programming a bracelet that like you know? lit up when you got near your friends or um, had inside jokes associated with it. Yeah, totally. Um, Especially when it doesn't feel forced, like it's not a teacher sitting you down and, you know, crunching through HTML or something like that. It's a game and it's fun and it's social and it, you know, it improves your life in a way that you can talk to your friends or your family. Um, So, yeah, I mean, I, I definitely could have seen myself playing with something like that. Yeah, that's very cool. Well, let's get into it. We'd like to take a moment to thank our sponsors. Hover makes purchasing and managing your domain simple and easy. This week, I talked to Max from Y Decision about how many domains he actually has as an account on Hover. So right now, I manage 104 domains on Hover. And, and those uh, are all your own? There's some of them are mine. Some of them are client domains that I, that I manage. All in all, 104. Wow. Go to Hover.com and use the code SATISFIEDCUSTOMERS to get 10% off your domain purchase today. Matt. Tell me what comes to mind when you think about starting a new product. Middleman, Git, Rails, Heroku, SSL, SSH, servers, clients, monitoring, logging. Okay, wait, 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 wait. Hold on a sec. Like before all that tech stuff, like basic day one, how do you start to reach customers? You just need a marketing side up. You need to start showing it to people. Okay, so start from, you know, sitting down in front of your computer You've got this idea. You want to get the marketing site up. What do you do? First things first, you need to find a great web host. You want a host who's reliable, been around a while, and is pretty well tested. A host that's easy to work with and ideally inexpensive. HostGator is a great option for this. They fit all those criteria, plus they're offering 30% off your first invoice for all Rocketship listeners. Definitely go check them out today, and don't let something as simple as hosting slow you down from reaching your first customers. Visit HostGator.com slash promo slash Rocketship to get your discount. You've heard me rave about CodeShip before. It's because they're an incredible team building an amazing product that makes my days happier and my code more reliable. Recently, they shipped an incredible new feature. It's called Parallel CI, and it allows for faster testing than ever before. Early access customers like Product Hunt have improved their development speed tremendously. If you haven't yet, tell your dev team to start a free trial. They have a super generous free plan, and they also offer 20% off three months to all Rocketship listeners. Sign up at codeship.com forward slash Rocketship. All right, cool. So um, kind of start off by telling us what JewelBots is. So um, JewelBots are friendship bracelets that are designed um, for the smart generation. So a good way to say it is friendship bracelets for the iPhone generation. Okay. (laughs) Um, So it's smart friendship bracelets, and they're designed to help get girls more comfortable in engineering and even get girls coding. Yeah, when I saw one of your early demo videos and the the girl was on the computer and she was kind of um, selecting the parameters for which she wanted to the lights to light up and what colors it looked just like coding. It seemed like you were kind of planting those seeds. Was that, that was definitely part of the design. 
Yeah, um, th- definitely. And that is one of our early prototypes that we did some user testing around. And we built a visual programming language for that. Um, okay. And it was so fascinating. Uh, the, the testing we did with that particular model, um, because we would go to schools and we would go to high schools and girls would see a bracelet and they would get really excited. So they would come over and they'd be like, hey, what is this? This is a bracelet. And we'd be like, yeah, do you want to code it? Do you want to, like, code it? And their face would just go blank, and they'd be like, no, hands up, no, sorry, that is not my thing. I don't know anything about that. I am not into that. (laughs) All right, then. That's that's kind of when we figured out that we needed to use different terminology than coding. Okay. um, So so they they were not fascinated at all by the tech culture or... You know, no, it's so interesting what we've seen talking to those girls. And, you know, you see it because we're all inundated by women in tech articles. Mm-hmm. But it's so interesting seeing. And first of all, we see it half because we've talked to girls from like eight years old to 18 years old. And we talk to groups of them. And you can literally see the ages where this happens right in the puberty area where they start looking at math and science as things that are not for them as technologies, things that they consume, but they don't manipulate. And when they hear things like coding, it just shuts them down. Uh, it's really fascinating. I think, it has, I, mean, I think it has a lot to do with how we socialize them and, and the experiences they have at that age, but it's just been really interesting actually seeing it. Do you think, what is it about the word code that you think rubs them the wrong way? Do you think that there's just an association with, oh, this is going to be like homework? Um, yeah, I think there's an association with, that's a really actually a great question, what it is about the word code. I always interpret it as them, status and social status is super important to them. We see it all, we see it that on the high school level. And I think for them, it really resonates as something, uh, very not befitting or very not something that is at least the vibe I get, very not something that's in their culture, part of their culture, something they have any interest in. Wow. So what is, like, what verbs or, or what language do you use now to describe it to them after realizing that code is just out at this point? Yeah, so that's something that we've been working on a lot. And I think that um, the way we're approaching it now is very much the way Minecraft approaches its users. Okay. Right? Because when you hear Minecraft, you don't think of a coding tool or something that teaches kids to code. Right. Or anything like that. You think of a game and you think of the game that millions of kids are playing and that tens of thousands, and you may, not, you may or may not know that tens of thousands of them, like 10-year-olds, are teaching themselves Java. Um, programming and they're like 11 year olds are becoming server administrators um, for Minecraft. And the reason why they're doing it is because Minecraft has given them the ability to access um, and to personalize their world. And so they're, they're excited about making their world in Minecraft a better place for their friends. And so they teach themselves, which is crazy. Like imagine if Beats by Dre got open source tomorrow, how many, kids would be teaching themselves to code, right? Because they mm-hmm. love Beats by Dre. They, um, and, you know, making that a most, more social experience or making any enhancement that they could, they would do it. So that's what we're doing. We're not shoving it down their throats. We're giving them tools that function right out of the box. They don't have to ever code it if they don't want to. But if they do want to code it, they can make it 10 times more awesome. So we're really hoping to get them on that level. So kind of taking a step back... Um 
was this always your intention uh, with the company was to appeal to this demographic with um, with a hardware or or did you just want to make a jewelry for women that that could be coded? Yeah, the um, the purpose has always been uh, to reach girls this age. Okay, um, and on the way to it, we've discovered uh, this technology in a Bluetooth mesh network um, that we've patented and that has many different implications with adults and kids alike. Um, But we're focusing on this group and this demographic first because we think that they deserve it. Interesting. Yeah. So you wrote a... um a great right now it's a three part series looks like it's going to be a six or seven part series on yep. so you want to build a hardware company um, yeah. you come from kind of a a a software background javascript specifically right yes and um so i was curious i'd love to walk through kind of the process that you took and some of the lessons that you learned um yep. along the way and i'd love to hear first kind of what was the the biggest kind of surprise to you um, in in the process of building out a, a hardware uh, prototype. Um, so, what was the process from the beginning? Is your question? Well, uh, what was the biggest surprise? Like coming from the, the software world, what was the the biggest difference that you found? The biggest thing is there's so many facets okay. of hardware that you don't think about. Like, did you know that you have to hire a package designer, packaging designer? <laughs> right. Right. No. Like. There's like a packaging, there's like someone that their only job is the package that your product comes in and they have to take into account things like, is this going to be on shelves or is this going to be hung up on a hook? Hmm. How will the light hit it if it's on a shelf versus if it's hung up on a hook? Where will people be seeing it? Will they be seeing it top down? Will they be seeing it from the front? Um, And these are all things that affect whether people buy your product and how attractive it is. Um, And this is something that you know, packaging designers do. And there's all kinds of things like that, like the the test structures that you have to build for your project and um, the different mechanical engineering little quirks that you have to think about, like um, how does the side of this interact with the bottom of this and is this going to pull out this wire and things like that. Um, That's been the craziest part. It's just like it's like software, but there's just infinitely more dimensions. So kind of on that same vein of like how people are, going to physically see it. Um, you said something before about the software side or the code side, which is we're not shoving it down their throats. Um, it's there if they want it. Um, how does that, how do you approach that from even getting the product in their hands? Because kids that age are so fickle with like what's cool and what's not. Um, if, if they feel like you're shoving it down their throat immediately, it's not cool. Right. So like, how do you get to them and, and have that discovery of the product? I think I think it's all about the messaging. And for now, our messaging is not we're not messaging it as an educational tool. Um, and I mean, I think that's super important. And our messaging will change a little. Right now, messaging is a little more geared towards parents with some upcoming crowdfunding campaigns. After those, we'll probably start messaging ex- just to the girls. And the messaging won't change very much. But you know, girls don't. They, for, I mean, we know, we've talked to a lot of them. They don't care that they can code it. They don't, they don't care that um, it's something that will help them learn. And in fact, they, you know, they have no interest in those kind of things, especially at that age. Um, they want to know how, how it 
it's going to improve their lives. And the biggest thing that we've heard from them talking to them so much, in fact, when we landed on this functionality um, from after talking to them for a while, every girl that we talk to now, like the look on their faces when they realize what it does, they freak out. <laughs> <laughs> they really, it's really cool. And it's so funny because adults really don't understand it. Um, and because it's just something that's so foreign to us, they have such different priorities than we do. Um, but I think for us, it, it's talking to them first, figure out what's important to them, and messaging it in that way. Like, this is what's, it's going to help build your friendships. It's going to make your friendships better. It's going to help you communicate with your friends while you're sitting in class. Like, remember writing notes? Now you don't have to write notes anymore. You can just send each other lights and vibrations from across the room. Um, so they're super stoked about that. And I think teachers are going to love that. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Um, and, uh, so when once, you know, if they can get past that and then stumble into this area where not only do we already have code written for them online that they can copy paste, but this code will help them interact with their Facebook and their Instagram. Um, and you know, know when their mom is on their way to pick them up, I think, that will just make it more awesome for them. And our hopes is that they'll stumble into it and find this whole world that's very accessible to them. Through this process to discover, um, I'd love to start at the, the prototyping phase. And you described two things. There's the works-like pro- prototype and the looks-like prototype. Um, kind yeah. of take us through those steps on, on how you developed those. Yeah, so um, we learned about looks-like and works-like through Highway 1, which is a hardware accelerator we did in San Francisco. Um, and Highway 1 was insanely valuable to us, especially coming from a software background, having access to people who have done this for 20 years. Um, and they talked a lot about the looks-like and the works-like prototype. And they have two very different functions. The, look, the looks-like prototype is to test design. And often, um, if you want to test design first, you, you don't want to build a fully functional model. You just want to test some designs, put them in the hands of users as soon as possible. And interest, I mean, they, we did some very early prototypes with foam and with wood and, you know, things like that. Just any material we get our hands on to get information from our users. Um, and then the works-like prototype is more of a proof of concept in the way that you want to make sure that the thing you want to build can be built. Mm. Okay. And so were you developing these simultaneously? <laughs> yeah, developing them simultaneously, which um, uh, kind of makes it a lot easier. One thing that we've learned, and, you know, the, the works-like prototypes start in the world of Arduino. Um, and Arduinos are larger than the boards that we're ultimately going to end up with, right? So yeah. it's difficult to do a looks-like and a works-like in the same model, because it's just going to be bigger, no matter what you do. Um, so that's, the, that's why it's important to split it out. So you can kind of test these theories at the same time and then kind of meld them together once you come up with, um, you know, uh, your hypothesis and you, you're comfortable with where you've gotten to on each side. Now, were you developing the looks like and the works like prototype yourself? Or did you bring in specialists who, who had... I guess, experience doing this for longer? I was. I was doing it myself. I was doing um, myself up to a point. I did, um, let me correct that. I did the uh, works like and not the looks like. Uh, I worked with my co-founder Maria on some early works like and our ultimate works like prototype is something uh, that we finished in 
um, December. Uh, the looks like um, is not something I'm particularly talented at. Okay. <laughs> so we hired a firm called Red Start, which is based in San Francisco. Um, they they uh, specialize in industrial design and jewelry design, which is why we chose them. Um, a lot of wearables tend to be very sterile looking and um, come from a really traditional industrial design background, kind of the Scandinavian look, um, which is uh, not the look we were going for. So we prioritized finding people that were comfortable both in 3D design and jewelry. So they were great, and they came up with our first two looks-like uh, prototypes. What were some of the, the tools that you used to develop that works-like prototype? Um, besides Arduino, there, there's some you know, others on the market that you mentioned that I had never actually heard of. Yeah, so we had the help and the um, mentorship of two people from Highway One, um, Brian Lee and John Carver. And Brian Lee is an electrical engineer and John Carver is a mechanical engineer, and he, they were insanely helpful. With uh, helpful, sorry, that's not even a word. <laughs> they, were, they were a huge help um, with designing both the electronics and the um, the enc- encasement of the works like prototype. Okay. Um, while I was forging ahead on the software, so um, the way. We had our boards fabricated in um, China um, at a place called Seed Studio. Uh, and we had uh, our, um, our, you know, the actual case uh, built in a uh, factory in San Francisco that specialized in injection molding and working with aluminum and things like that. What's the language that kind of ties these together when you're working from China to San Francisco? All these pieces need to come together. What kind of, what's the communication like there? Yeah, so as like a project manager, that's something that you have to ensure is the case. Okay. Um, and it just requires a lot of testing. Like with that first works-like prototype, something that we learned, and it took us a while to learn it, what ended up happening is we would be demoing, 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 and then it wouldn't work. Demoing, 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 and again, and then we'd have to like resolder some things, and it would happen again. It happened three times finally until I realized, and I was like, why do these, I keep soldering these wires to this battery, from this battery to our board. They keep coming off. I don't know what I'm doing wrong. And then what I realized after the third time of it happening was that our button in order to turn the unit off, it was a long press on the button. So like a one, two, three, and then it shuts off. Kind of like okay. your phone. Okay, um, okay. And what I realized is when I was pushing down on the button, because I would push it hard when I was turning it off, it was pulling the wires off on the under, underneath, on the bottom. Oh, no way. And it's so crazy because you wouldn't have known that looking at the designs. And even people that you know, have done this for a long time say this is part of it. You just, this is why you prototype, this is why you test, because you learn things like that. Okay. Um, which is crazy um, and expensive. <laughs> yes. <laughs> um, but yeah, it's, it's all part of the hardware process. So, how, like, I mean, talking about the expenses a little bit, as you're prototyping, you're working with China, you're working with San Francisco. Um, 
how much do you have to raise to, to kind of get that prototype out there for a, for a hardware company? So are we thinking like just a prototype? Yeah, just to kind of test, you know, like, and then of course there's going to market and, and doing that, yeah. but just to get through that initial phase to even see if this is viable. Yeah. So initially, um, uh, when you're working with Arduino, those things are super cheap, okay. right? And so for the first nine months of Julie Bots, we were bootstrapping and I was doing this on the side at a full-time job. Um, and that was plenty to get me, you know, knee deep in Arduino. I was okay with that. Um, and then we got into Highway 1, and Highway 1 gives you um, an investment, uh, and it's an order to do, it's basically, it depends on where your company is, but it's basically for prototyping. Um, and that was, for our class, it was um, 50K, I think it might be more now, I don't know, it's not, uh, but um, that, that worked great for us as a great way to get to um, a place where we were uh, comfortable with our prototypes. So a big difference between hardware and software, obviously, is having to manufacture the physical good. So when you're starting this, I'm sure you had like a a number in mind of what people would be willing to pay for something like this, or at least a range. How did you know you were going to be able to produce it for, um, you know, less than that amount or a good margin to be able to make it worth it when there's so much unknown? Yeah, that's a great question. So um, the answer is you don't really know and you shouldn't commit until you're 100%. And even now, as we continue design, we know that uh, so a term I learned at Highway 1 is bill of materials. <clears throat> so your bill of materials is your cost for the actual items that are going on. It's not the manufacturing. Um, it's the actual items that are what you need to buy in order to make your product. Um, and... Uh, PCH is a parent company of Highway One as a manufacturer, and their advice to us was always do four times your bill of materials. So whatever your bill of material is, multiply that by four, and that's your retail price. Um, just to make sure you have enough margin to go um, into retail stores, uh, you need to make sure that you're multiplying that by enough. Um, so since the beginning, our priority has to keep... Um, Toolbox as inexpensive as possible because we want to make it accessible for girls from high income, low income families. You know, no matter where you're from, we want to make it possible. And our and our goal is to make it about the same price as a video game. Um, and so we've kept that in mind from the beginning when we're adding components and adding features of like how much is this component? Is this going to cost? You know, like something we opted not to do is put an accelerometer in our Jewelbot and the. Um, because accelerometer is great, you know, and uh, even though we've heard from the girls, they don't really care about the fitness tracking, you know, it might be neat to see if they're dancing or whatever. Um, but, you know, due to the fact that it would add on to our bill of materials and add to our price, we decided not to do it. So it's always trade-offs like that. So um, the answer is uh, we still don't know, you know, how much exactly dual bots are going to be. And PCH coached us a lot on not committing to anyone, um, you know. If you say these things up front and then you learn something last minute, you know, you can end up losing a lot of money. So uh, you kind of learn as you go how much your pricing is going to be. So you guys are doing testing right now with 
um, with a group of girls who are kind of range from middle school to high school. What are some of the things that you've learned that have actually changed the course of your product along the way? Yeah, so the biggest thing we learned, so our initial hypothesis is that girls would want jewelry that changed color based on what they were wearing. You know, they could wake up in the morning and be like, I'm wearing blue pants today (laughs) and be like, I'm going to have a blue bracelet. This is awesome. Um, And so that's when the first thing we did was start talking to girls and we did some storyboarding. You know, this is super early before we had any prototypes. Mm -hmm. We had drawings, you know, and some people think, oh, that's too early. They don't know what you're doing, but you learn so much. You know, there really isn't too early to start user testing. So um, based on... So when we, you know, talked to them about that, we expected them to be like, oh, cool, this is the coolest. Um, and what we heard from them is that doesn't sound fun at all. <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, oh, okay. Um, and so then we had to talk to them about what was fun and what was interesting to them. And that's kind of how we landed on our um, functionality now. And now when we go talk to these girls, they freak out because they're so excited. Uh, as soon as they realize what they're going to be able to do, they get really excited, which is great. Wow. Yeah. So how are you going to like go to the market with this? This is such a different product than anyone that we've talked to. Um, what have you guys learned about the marketplace and, and where these kind of things are being discovered? Yeah. So it's very different than where we're discovering things, right? Because we're discovering things on, especially thing, things, early adopter things like this on Kickstarter or Hacker News and things like that. Um, and this isn't something that our demographic frequents at all. And the thing that, and they do do a lot of shopping online. Okay. So that's something that they're very comfortable with. They do their discovery much differently though. And what we've heard from them is that Instagram is huge. Uh, you know, Instagram influencers, YouTube influencers, Mm. uh, people like that. So that's going to be our goal as far as marketing goes. Um, fine. The, you know, set your nasty gals, your um, your rookie magazine, uh, places like that where they make discovery of new products. Is there um, like marketplaces set up for this? I know like Instagram, it's still, and even YouTube, it's it's still very much um, sole entertainers um, yeah. that you need to get in touch with. It, it, are there kind of um, marketplaces opening up so it's easier to get in front of these influencers and, and show yeah. them the product? Yeah, so they now have representation. Okay. Just like Hollywood actors have agents, <laughs> um, YouTube startups have, agent, have agents. So it's really, it's like from, you know, what I've heard, it's, it's like a regular campaign that you would do with any other celebrity. There's definitely a difference in price point. It's cheap, cheaper than getting Tom Cruise. Um, but, uh, the, the process is still the same. Okay. Okay. So you're going through agents and pitching the product and hoping that they use it on YouTube or even paying for the, for the placement. Yes. Yeah. That's cool. So where, where kind of, um, where do you stand now as you guys grow, um, coming from software now working with hardware, um, do you love them the same? Um, it's so you know what? I can't say that. <laughs> you know, I can't say it. I can't say that. What I can say though is um, the excitement that I found. You know, doing my first Hello World and discovering the software community and learning about the capabilities of the internet, what I could build, 
um, 10 years ago is the same experience I'm having now with hardware. It's really neat. Uh, it's really, it's a wonderful, it's a wonderful awakening that I haven't experienced in a while. And that's just learning about a whole new world that is really cool and powerful and dynamic and, um, does all kinds of really neat things. That's cool. Yeah. That's, that's, uh, it, it, we're always learning and it's, it's nice to sometimes get back to, to knowing nothing. Uh, yeah, it is. <laughs> <laughs> so where can we keep up with you and Jewelbots online? Yeah, so Jewelbots.com, at Jewelbots on Twitter. We'll um, shortly be kicking off uh, a Kickstarter campaign as well as a campaign with Choir. Cool. Uh, we will uh, be distributing Jewelbots very soon. Nice, nice. And does that mean that we'll get to invest in Jewelbots? Or Yeah. Okay. So that's the really neat thing about Choir is for accredited investors, you can invest in Jewelbots as low as little as $1,000 and get uh, equity in Jewelbots. So you can be part of our growth and, um, you know, part of a great community that enables us to build a solution and hopefully change the world of software engineering. That's really cool. Well, thank you so much for coming on and sharing this with us. Thanks for having me. I really appreciate the invitation. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Rocket Ship Podcast. If you enjoyed it, we have tons of other awesome episodes on our website. Check them out, rocketship.fm. And make sure to check out our app discount section where we feature discounts from amazing companies like Treehouse, Wistia, Woo Themes, all giving you exclusive discounts for being a Rocketship listener. So go to rocketship.fm forward slash essentials. Suddenly, the clouds have opened up and I've been seen in all of my glory. The time has come for faith to decide if a part of me is even worthy. The air is warm.